we're in the midst of a series called A Call for uh, Courage. And so uh, three weeks ago, we looked at the first one and we just kind of talked about kind of the reality of this moment that we're living in. And that for those of us who, who are Christians and just take faith um, and, and we, we see that's kind of getting a little awkward. It's kind of getting a little uncomfortable in our culture. We see some of the ways, uh, the directions that things are heading, and it might cause some of us to be alarmed. We see the changes taking place. And the last, we, we kind of got down to this point that it's like what the church needs in this time is courage. But the question is, what does, does courage look like? What, where does courage come from? And we talked about last week that courage is not something that we find within ourselves because if we look within ourselves, we're going to quickly be disappointed because we will find that there's not something in there that really gives us a lot of reason to be courage or courageous. But if we look to God, that's where we find courage because God has more than enough, that God is wise and God is able. And so that's where we find courage. And so this morning, I just want to talk about kind of the story that we're living in in this moment. We, we all love stories. Like, think about it. When you get together with old friends or family that you haven't seen for a while, what, what do you usually do? You, you start to reminisce. You start to tell stories. And it's often the same stories that get told over and over again. Now, we all love a good story. Uh, last year in 2022, Americans spent $6.54 billion in movie tickets alone. So that's just the movie tickets. That doesn't include like streaming services or anything like that. Uh, romance novels, there was $1.54 billion of uh, revenue that was made last year. And so, I mean, maybe you're like, I haven't read a romance novel in my life. You're still reading stories and taking them in in some way because we're all listening to these stories, whether it's through your social media feed, the news, music, magazines, blogs, books, um, the movies again, Netflix. Like we, we, can, we can go, there's stories everywhere around us. And these stories, whether we kind of are aware of it or not, they tell us what our culture believes is good, true, and important about life. And, and these stories teach us or, or communicate to us quite a bit about what our culture believes is important and, and good in life. Now, in March of 2020, uh, I had the television on one morning um, and I had it on CBC because they have children's programming. And so our daughter was like two and a half at the time and, and it was on for her just kind of keeping her entertained as we were getting ready for the day. And usually at that time of day, it's things like Gumboot Kids and Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood and, and things like that, just children's programming. But I, I heard it come on in the background, um, this segment in which there were two young women talking about a soon to be released Disney movie. And this Disney movie, it featured the first openly gay character in Disney history. And so they were kind of talking about this and, and just kind of how people were, were reacting to it. And um, in this time, the, these two women start talking about sexual identity. Now, I, I, like, I wasn't like angry. I wasn't upset. I wasn't like, I'm going to write CBC a scolding letter. They'll feel my wrath. Like, take that. Um, and I wasn't actually surprised because if I consider it from their point of view, they're just trying to communicate what's good, what's true, what's important about life. But what surprised me most is that they're in the midst of all these children's stories. They're discussing sexual identity. And this is this like for, for young children. Now, my point in this is this. We are being formed by the stories of our culture. 
Our kids are being shaped by these stories, and we might go, they're harmless stories, just simply meant to entertain, but we have to understand that these, these do impact us. Like, I talked about this a while ago, but a few years ago, there was an article that was released in which parents in the U.S. and Canada were, were kind of confused as to why their young children, like two, three, four, five-year-olds, were beginning to speak with a British accent, and they couldn't understand why, but then it was soon discovered and, and dubbed what is known as the Peppa effect. And so all these young children were watching Peppa Pig. The British pig speaks with a British accent. And they were picking up on that and beginning to speak with British accents themselves. And I think about even our daughter, Jane. She loves Peppa. And we call it sunscreen in our home. And she was calling it sun cream, because that's what Peppa calls it. She was calling it tomatoes instead of tomatoes. And I was like, no, it's tomatoes. This is how we pronounce it in the Stevenson household. Now, it's not just kids. Maybe you've watched a movie or a show, and you've, you've seen a character, and you've been like, I, I want to be like that. Like, for some of us, think back to the late, uh, the late 90s, early 2000s. There was a show called Friends, and all the women were going to the, the hairdresser going, I want the Rachel. Like, they, they wanted their hair to look like Rachel Green. For, for some men, you, you watch a movie, and like there's this masculine character, and you're like, man, he has a mustache. I should have a mustache, too. It's like, this is how it plays. And advertising is geared to tell you a story about what is good or what constitutes the good life or what will make you happy. And it's like, if you buy this product, you'll, you'll, you'll be happy. You'll be fulfilled. And so we are being discipled by Netflix, our favorite news channel, we're being spiritually shaped by our social media feed. And so I bring this up because in these times, and it's, it's not a time where it's like getting easier to live out our faith necessarily in this, this culture, these stories will shape the way we see this time and how we respond to it. And if we live in the stories that our culture tells us, we're going to be tempted to shrink back or give up. And the stories we listen to, they either strengthen or weaken our courage. Now the Bible, if you've read it cover to cover, you, you, you might realize that it's not just like a bunch of different stories isolated, but it's, it's actually quite a few stories that come together to tell one big story, the true story, God's story. And in Genesis chapter one, that story begins. And you see that God creates everything and he declares that it's good and God finishes his creation with this personal touch. He creates humanity in his own image and he, he places them in the Garden of Eden. And so from the beginning, God has this beautiful dream that humanity is going to share in this beautiful, joyful relationship that God experiences within himself as, a as the Trinitarian God. And so we would be his children and we would live with him forever in this perfect home. Now, Genesis 2, you can read that. That's a glimpse of what God intends life to be like. Life is meant to be enjoyed in his good creation, in good relationship with God, in good relationship with others. Life is beautiful. Life is sacred. God's hope, his intention, his plan is that it's always going to be this way. But like, I don't have to tell you, you just look out into the world and you go, okay, that's not the reality I'm actually living in. Something has changed from Genesis chapter 2. And we get to, don't worry, like we're hitting Genesis 3. I'm not going like chapter by chapter through every book of the Bible. We'll be okay. But Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say 
You can't eat from any tree in the garden. Now, for some of us, I don't know where we're all here in this room, but you're like, okay, a talking snake, uh, you check out because you're going like, this is make-believe, this is ridiculous. We have to understand that this isn't just simply a snake, that there's a powerful spiritual force using the snake. It's an evil force, and it's God's enemy, Satan. And Satan's not content simply to be one of God's angels. He wants to be God in the position of God. And so what he does is he leads a rebellion against God. But this is a rebellion he does not stand a chance of winning. And so after war breaks out in heaven, God casts Satan and those who followed him in that rebellion out of heaven because of their treason. And so still to this day, Satan seethes with anger and hatred towards God. He lives in rebellion against God. And his intent, he's got a mission, is to wreck, to steal, to kill, and destroy one relationship, one community, and one generation at a time. He wants to keep lost people lost. And so he enters the garden and he disguises himself as a snake and he waits for the right opportunity. And one day he, he sees it. And he, he, he speaks to Eve and he gets her to doubt God's goodness. He gets Eve to focus on the one thing that God said was off limits, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so my paraphrase, Satan speaks to Eve. Look at God limiting your freedom. You should be able to do whatever you want. I mean, if God loves you, why would he not let you eat this fruit? Maybe God doesn't want you to be happy. I think you should eat the fruit. You'll probably be happier actually if you, if you eat it. And so Satan leads Eve to believe that God is holding something better back, that God is not giving humanity his best or doing what is best for humanity. And temptation, it often begins with this idea that what God wants, what God commands us, isn't actually what's best for us. And Satan's primary method is lies. His go-to move, his, his, his primary strategy is deception. And when we give in to temptation, that is sin. And sin is often kind of this. We, us believing, you know what, I, I know better than God does. It's, it's saying that in this area of, of my life, where God says this, but I want to do this, and I'm going to do what I want, it's saying, I know what's better for life than God does. I make a better God than God does in this kind of realm. Whether it could be anything, finances, relationships, I mean, we, we could keep going. Now, sin is ultimately a form of treason against God. And so Adam and Eve, they believe this lie that says, God doesn't love me, God doesn't know what's best for me, and they eat they eat the fruit, and in the moment they do, everything changes. So most of us, if, we, if we've read the Bible, we know how it goes, that Adam and Eve's eyes are opened. They fear God. They feel shame. They try to hide from God. And God, he, he finds them. It's like, try hide from God. Where are you? Behind these trees. Okay. Um, I knew that. But God comes to them. He says, there's going to be consequences for your rebellion. And life on earth becomes harder, more painful, more frustrating, the perfect relationship that God, uh, humanity had with God was broken. And from that day on, death is a guarantee. It's only a matter of time that humans will return to the dust from which they were created. And the earth begins to fill with death and decay. And if we look at the world and we, we kind of get outside of our isolated North American bubble or what we kind of surround ourselves in the safe areas, you look at the world 
And you go, that, that's, that's true. There is death. There is decay. It's not actually getting better. Now in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, it says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And so on that day, God declares war, but he doesn't declare war on humanity. He declares war on Satan. And throughout scripture, what we see is this, that God is a God who fights for his people, not against them. God wars against his enemy and vows to rescue those who, who listened to the enemy, who kind of sided with the enemy. We also see this, God gives hope of a warrior who will end the battle decisively. And so God kind of makes this pronouncement to Satan. Another say, like, it's like the first time the gospel is kind of preached, but it goes like this. You're going to strike the heel of the woman's child, but that child's going to crush your head. Like last night, um, when, when my wife Shannon was getting into bed, um, she kicked the edge of our bed frame. And it wasn't just like a little um, stubbing of the toe. It was like I could hear like cracking. It just, it was very loud. And it was like, that is going to hurt way more in the morning. But here's the thing, like when I looked over in the morning, Shannon was still breathing. Like, she wasn't dead. Like, stubbing her toe did not kill her. It hurts. She's still, like, walking with a little bit of pain, but she's alive. She survived it. But if you get your head crushed, a blow like that, that is fatal. It's lethal. And what God is promising in that verse is that one day, Satan's going to wound the woman's child, but that child will deliver a decisive and lethal blow to the head of Satan. So God is saying, I'm going to defeat the enemy so the world is restored, not destroyed. And through the course of time, God prepares for the son of the, the, the woman to arrive. And at just the right time, the warrior arrives and his name is Jesus. And so Paul, he writes the following about, about Jesus in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and following. It says, and when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. And so... On the cross, what, what is happening is God is making it possible for our sin to be forgiven, that we can accept Christ as Lord and Savior, that we can be brought back into right relationship with God. But that's not the only thing that is happening. While that's amazing, there's more taking place there. In verse 15, Paul had talked about the rulers and the authorities that have been disarmed and disgraced. And so there he's referring to Satan and his demons. And Paul is talking about our spiritual enemies in this moment. If you have your Bible, go to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. And, and Paul, he writes there in this verse, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. 
And so in this time where things are getting a little bit more uncomfortable for us in our faith, and maybe we're getting some pushback against our beliefs, we need to remember this as the church, that people are not the enemy. More as we, we should actually view them as people who have been taken hostage by the enemy and we've been called to help rescue from the enemy. And there's some people out there who will say some pretty terrible things about your faith, about the church, about Jesus. And they'll, they'll war against the church and they've, they've got a mission. But here's the thing. Regardless of how bad or abhorrent what they might say, God is not going, you know what I want you to do? Destroy them. Wreck their life. He does not give you that mission. The enemy is Satan and his demons. And so in Colossians chapter 2, Paul is saying that our spiritual enemies are publicly disgraced because they're shown to be powerless and neutralized. And so what, what is Satan's weapon against which none of us had any defense? It's our sin. Our sin allowed Satan to accuse us before God of cosmic treason against God, of ultimately seeking to sit on God's throne just like Satan did. And if left on our own, we have no answer to that accusation because it's like the, the reality is, and God will say, you are guilty of sin. Scripture says you are guilty of sin. You have done things that you know you should not do, have been told you should not do, and you haven't done the things that you have been told to do and you know that you should do. And it's not just you, it's, it's every one of us here in this room. But the gospel that comes along and says, Jesus Christ has died for our sins. He was punished for your treason and your trespasses. And when Satan accuses you of sin, the cross is your answer and defense. Yes, I am guilty of sin, but Jesus has paid for my sin with his blood. And Satan has no more arguments to bring before the judge because he's, as Paul says, he's been disarmed. His strongest argument is rendered powerless because the judge is the one who's paid your debt. He goes to the judge. He's a sinner. He deserves death. And the judge is like, you're right. You're not wrong in that. But you know what? A death has been offered. It was Jesus Christ. And so the cross shows that Satan has been publicly defeated Satan has no accusation to bring against those in Christ, that there's no sin, no plot of Satan with more power than the cross of Christ. And so in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, Paul writes this, God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. I asked the first service when they were driving here, what did they think was going to be taking place here this morning? Or maybe you're, you're joining us online, but it's like, what, what we kind of tend to think is like, <clears throat> I'm going to roll in, show up probably like, ah, service starts at, at 11. So 11.17, I'll hit the church at 11.17. We aim for that. And we're going to sing a few songs going to learn a little bit about the Bible, shake a few hands, say hi to some people, and hopefully we'll be rolling out of here at a decent time. We'll beat the other churches to the restaurants or something like that. That's kind of what we think. We, we think kind of on this temporal, earthly level. 
But Paul is saying that throughout history, all along, behind the scenes, that God has been at work on a plan to redeem creation. And through followers like us, gathered in churches like this, this extraordinary plan of God is made known and marveled at by angels and demons. And every time we, the church, gather to celebrate the gospel, every time we proclaim the gospel, Paul's saying that, that that victory of God is put on display to the spiritual forces in the heavens, in the unseen realms. And so there's so much more taking place here right now than what we can see and what we can touch and what we can hear. That there's, there's something going on in the cosmos. And every time we celebrate the cross of Christ, we remind Satan that he has lost. And so Paul is going, the church, that is us, is God's wisdom on display throughout the universe. But here's the thing, oftentimes we forget about that story and the beauty and the power of the church. Mark Clark, he writes in his book, The Problem of God, how often have we turned on the television and heard the host say, tonight we'll be talking about faith versus science. Our first guest is a former University of Oxford professor, evolutionary biologist, and best-selling author. He believes that science, not faith, holds the answers to all questions. On the other side of the aisle, we have Joe Smith, who will speak for the legitimacy of faith in Christianity. Joe homeschools his kids, thinks Oprah is the Antichrist, and lives in a swamp. Okay, you guys got that a bit more than the first service. But here's the thing, like we, we see stories like this or we hear things like this every day, um, whether it's on TV, in the news, on social media, go to the comments section, pretty much on anything um, related to science or faith and you, you see comments like this. And Christianity is painted and seen as naive and bigoted and in, incompatible with human reason and on the wrong side of history. And these, these stories affect how we see ourselves and the world. And, and the story that our culture um, tells us is that the church, you know what, it's optional at best. It's some outdated way of connecting with God. It's, it's long outlived its usefulness. We're increasingly told that the church is problematic, maybe even dangerous. And some of us are, are listening to those stories. And we're starting to believe them or we are believing them and are living out of that belief. And it's easy for us to reduce the church to and a place to be, an hour on Sunday, a weekend tradition, a gathering to attend as long as nothing better presents itself. Like, we, we call ourselves followers of Christ. I'm a disciple, I follow Jesus. But we don't live in a Christ-honoring or Christ-like way when it comes to approaching his bride, the church. We treat it more like a hobby, a pastime. We give more devotion to our hobbies and pastimes. And we forget the grand vision that God has for the bride of Christ. We become blind to the cosmic reality of the church. Instead, what we choose to focus on is the what we can see, the frustrations, the flaws. Like, you know what, those drums, too loud. Their pants had a hole in them. Did you see the worship leader's hair? The translation the pastor uses, I don't really like. The coffee, terrible. Like, I mean, I could keep going. These are the things that we focus on. 
But Francis Chan, he, he goes like, you've, you've got a role to play in this cosmic war. Stop focusing on the, the, the earthly things. He writes this, the church's purpose is not just to exist. Although that's what we often aim for, let's keep the doors open and pay the bills. It's to produce. And so God has given his church an important role to play in the story. We join the victory of God by living out the gospel wherever we are. You've been invited by God, equipped by his spirit to play a major role in the story, that you are called to make disciples who can make disciples who can make disciples, that he invites you to be a part of pushing back the darkness in this world and inviting others to step into the light. Now the world will try and tell us we're wrong because of our beliefs, but the reality is the gospel has never been popular in a world that wants to be its own God. And Christianity, again, it's, it's thought of being out of date, out of touch. But the truth is that our time has not actually come. Our time comes when Jesus returns, and that's when your hope is going to be fully realized. That all wrongs will be made right, all sins left behind, all hurts healed, all errors corrected, and you will be with Christ. But that day is not today. Like Satan's still fighting, he's going to try and distract you, discourage you, deceive you so that you'll forget the incredible privilege and responsibility that you've been given to bring the good news of the gospel to a world that's desperately in need of good news, in need of hope. And Satan schemes and he plans to try and get us, the church, to believe a different story. And so in 1 Peter, you, you have Pete, the Apostle Peter who's writing to Christians in the Roman Empire 300 years before Christianity becomes the official religion of the empire. And in 1 Peter 2.11, Peter's like, you, you guys, you Christians, you're exiles, you're foreigners, you're strangers, you're passing through. This world is not your home. You don't belong. And so what we can think of 1 Peter as God preparing his people for what he knows is about to come, some pretty intense persecution. And so in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter writes in verse 8 and following, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Through Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Like Satan is defeated, but he's not yet crushed. He's still fighting and he wants to spoil Jesus' victory. And if he can cause the church to be afraid, if he can convince Christians, you know what, the church, it's finished there's no hope of victory, then he can weaken our courage, the courage that this time demands. And so Peter goes, like, you need to resist him for the little while that you're here. We need to stand firm on God's grace and look forward to eternity. And so how do you look forward to eternity by staying on God's grace? Well, God's grace says this. You can stand firm in it because God's grace does not depend on you in, in any way whatsoever. 
It's based on what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And I use that word done. It's finished because Jesus says it's finished. And so you don't have to worry about the work getting completed. The work is done. We, we, it all hinges on Jesus' triumphant work on the cross, not our own. And so Jesus will again return to fight that final battle against his enemies and God's people will return to the garden city described in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And we look forward to everything that God's promised to those who are his. And in the end, God's people are victorious. And Romans 8.37 tells us, you know what? We are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. The Lord of the Rings is a story written by J.R.R. Tolkien, um, and this was written a long time ago, but it's actually a story that's broken up over three kind of books. And so you have uh, The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and The Return of the King. And so a basic synopsis is this, that a hobbit named Frodo, and you're like, what's a hobbit? It's, it's kind of a nerd thing. You read the books. Um, but a hobbit named Frodo, comes in possession of this ring that has the power to rule the world, but it will also corrupt its owner. And so um, Gandalf the wizard, I know I sound like such a nerd right now, but he gets together this, this fellowship and it's made of hobbits and dwarves and elves and men. And they're like, we're going to Mount Doom and we're gonna destroy this ring and do away with our enemy Sauron. Now, the first time I kind of encountered this story was in 2001 when Peter Jackson released the first film in kind of the trilogy called The Fellowship of the Ring. And so I go and I watch it in theaters and I'm kind of hooked in this story. But the problem is, it's a trilogy. And so I have to wait two years till 2003. He releases The Return of the King to find out how does this story end? And uh, spoiler alert, um, they do make it to Mount Doom and the ring goes into uh, the fire and it's a happily ever after. If I spoiled it for you, you had plenty of time to read the books and watch the movies. Um, but I was like, okay, I know how it ends. But as I was kind of waiting for it, I was like, how does this end? How does it play? Does, does good play out? Does good uh, conquer evil? Now, a few years later, I was like, you know what? I'm gonna read the actual books. And so I took some time and I, I read through them and I, I enjoyed them. Um, I knew how it was going to end though. Like I knew that in the end, good vanquishes evil, that the, the ring is destroyed. And I, I could read the books going, no matter what happens kind of in between the beginning and the end, I know how this will play out. I know what happens. There's gonna be some difficulties in there. I, I saw them, but I, I saw and knew what was coming, that there would be a happy ending. And Billy Graham, he once said, I've read the last page of the Bible. It's all going to turn out all right. And we know how this ends because Jesus has told us. And since we know how it ends, we can live towards that ending. Since we know how it ends, we can find courage through it. We can find comfort in it. Matt Chandler, he wrote, we do not wring our hands over the progress of some culture war if we know the result of the cosmic war. And I know when we look at things, it might feel like we're losing the battle today. And things might not look that great, but the war has been won. In Romans chapter 16, verse 20, the apostle Paul, he writes, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Like if you've been a Christian for many, many, many years, maybe you're, you're older, 
you might look back with some fondness on the, the good old days. I remember the Bible used to be in every classroom. We would start the day with the Lord's Prayer. Everybody thought the same way that we thought. We all agreed on things. Most people went to church. And we reflect back on those days with fondness. And then we talk about the church today and our faith. And we talk as if the dream has died. We talk about Christianity as if it was some social experiment that we tried in our culture, but it kind of failed and we were left wanting. But Stephen McAlpine, he writes, the story of God's people throughout the Bible is always one of suffer now, glory later. And so our best days are not in the past. Our best days are still to come. The best is not behind us, but before us. And Christ promises you are headed towards an eternity of unimaginable glory. But right now, in this little while that we exist, we have a role to play. We take the gospel declaration of victory won through Jesus Christ and we offer it to the world. And so we understand that God is great. We know our place in the story, but the question is how do we live with courage practically in these days? And so on October 8th, we're gonna talk about that.